Live from the Hundred Acre Wood, this is Derailed Trains of Thought. Welcome to episode 142 of Derailed Trains of Thought, your premier podcast on storytelling. For the creator and the consumer. My name is Timothy Deal. My name is Nick Hayden. Nick, this is a dream come true. My childhood self would be uh, really excited. This about is, this this is great. It's very peaceful and wonderful here. It's very peaceful. Yeah. I mean, the only thing you have to worry about are the bees occasionally. Well, yeah, I mean, as long as you go for the honey, you'll probably be fine. Probably, probably. And there was some guy in a, I don't know, some sort of orange outfit that jumped on me a little while ago. Oh, I'm not sure what that was all about. That's weird. But this has been a fun, cozy place to visit. Yes. We should visit some of the residents one of these days. I, I agree. I agree. So how's your summer going so far, Nick? Doing pretty well. Just adjusting to my not teaching schedule, which is very <laughs> much uh, looser and more open, which has been nice. Cool. Yeah. Very fun. How about your summer, which is about the same? Um, for me, it's it's going, yeah, about the same as normal for me. Uh, Janelle is doing her last class of her master's program, so she's a bit busier. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like she tends to be much busier in her free time than I am because uh, she's been doing that, but she's almost done this last class, and then she's got comps, I think, in July, some sort of comp exam. So, and then she'll be all done, and she will have nothing to worry about Except an upcoming little one. Oh, well, congratulations. Oh, thank you. I don't think we've actually mentioned that we on have the not podcast mentioned, before. No, I did know it beforehand, um, audience. <laughs> like, <Yes>. wait, what? <laughs> yes, no, we are expecting a little one in October, so that's that's exciting. October is a good month. Uh, it is got a good several month. birthdays in October in my family. Do you, that, in the Hayden clan? Yeah. Yeah, that's not surprising. Well, actually, just my family. Yeah, Natasha and Serenity. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Your immediate family. Yep. Fun. All well, right. we're looking forward to that, but right now we've got a podcast to get to, Nick. Yes, we're in it. We're in it. Um, it brought us here to the Hundred Acre Wood, so we better uh, start talking in story school. I feel sometimes we belabor our introductions to things. I don't know if you ever People, noticed that. Yeah, we're like, we're almost there. <laughs> it's like, just get on with it. Get on with it. But today we're talking about something a little different, I think, that we've covered before. Forks. Uh, and spoons. Yeah, silverware. Silver, lots and, of silverware. And how they relate to stories. Yes. <laughs> no, we're talking about public domain and we are a fan of public domain sound on this podcast. Yes, we, we are. We but have it, used that. I'm not sure it's time. technically public domain sound. It's like or the OC remix stuff. Yeah, it's somewhere in between. Well, some, but actually, our um, our story school intro is public domain. Okay, true. It's from Internet Archive. Yeah, but anyway, I guess first we should explain, Nick. What is public domain? What does that mean? I should actually have the official terminology here at some point, but um, it basically means that no one has any more rights to it. That the rights are gone and anyone can use it legally. Mm-hmm. They can, you can read it, you can print it, you can buy it, you can, well, not buy it, it's free. Um, you <laughs> well, can change it up, you can rearrange it. You, you can, could buy someone's arranged version of something. Yes. So yes. This, this includes basically any type of artwork. Any type of artwork, like music, literature, movies, anything that someone made is usually under copyright, mm-hmm. which means they own it, 
it's theirs. They should get proceeds or permission. And a lot of things nowadays, like on the internet, like I can have copyright to my story and I might still give out for free. Just being free does not mean it's public domain. That's a good point. But it's still mine. You still shouldn't do anything that I don't give you permission to do. You can go read it, share it, whatever. I mean, I can even give you permission like Creative Commons to do remixes, but still copyrighted, I think. Right. You yeah. technically own it, even though you have chosen to, to distribute it for free. And the public domain means now culture owns it. Yes. Basically. Yes. It's in the public domain. Yeah. <laughs> so I wonder where this podcast falls now that I think about it. We've never copyrighted it or anything. That's true. Well, yeah, I don't know how that works nowadays. I don't know how that works with podcasts, technically. Uh, yeah, we probably shouldn't be theorizing well, about this on, on the I air. think it says after. So we have this nice fantasy chart. So com- com- we're not going to get deep into copyright law because it's complicated. complicated. And either one of us is a lawyer. Or wants to be. Or wants to be, <laughs> no. But it does say basically, I mean, you need to put the copyright, but I think a lot of things are just automatically copyrighted nowadays. It's probably true. That if I you mean, make it, it's kind of just yours. I don't know how true that is because I'm not a lawyer, but it sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> and I know on places like freesound.org, which is a place where I've sometimes pulled sound effects that we've used yeah. on this podcast and other places, they will have a license that comes with it that will say exactly what this is and is not used for. So there are certain places where they will have you specify what is this used for. Mm-hmm. Uh, or what is permissible? What sort of copyright are you claiming on this? But I guess in some places it's, it's assumed, but maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I know that there are some movies, like professionally made movies, that have entered public domain because the copyright was not, the license was not updated at some point. Yeah, but those are, I think those were older movies, right? Well, some, but not all. Like Charade, starring Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn. What year was that? 1960s something. I'm looking through my giant chart of of, of copyright law. Here, that, yeah. So we're getting a lot of 1963. Okay, actually. we have a lot of our information today from the Center for the Study of Public Domain out of um, Duke University, which is very interesting. It gives you if you want more detail that you're going to get here. Go visit. It's a very fascinating website. There's a lot for you to dig into there. Yeah. They, do, they do a thing every year called Public Domain Day, which uh, is the first day of the year, essentially, when new works will enter public domain because because the law basically says it's been long enough. Originally, for a long time, copyrights expired like 75 years after, most copyrights expired 75 years after the original date of publication. Yeah. But then... 1998, I think it was, that Congress basically extended that to 95 years. Yes. And, or 120 years after the date of creation, whichever comes first. How, oh, I see, if the copyright, okay. Like if you create it and then you published it much later. Oh, they oh I see. Anyways, yeah. That's At prob- least that's what this is saying here. Okay, that's probably uh, a rare thing, I'm guessing. I mean, it seems like generally now it's 70 years after the death of the author, or 95 years if it's a corporate Corporate or on copyright. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I don't remember how... Let me see real quick. But it did seem like on the chart, there are various older works that if it was not renewed, it would fall out of copyright. But now I don't think you renew. I think it's just a blanket 70 or 95 years. Right, right. And, and you don't renew. And I think Charade, and there's some other ones that just fall in a weird place. Charade has, according to Wikipedia, film includes a notice stating... The year by Universal Pictures Company Incorporated and et cetera, et cetera, all rights are reserved, but omitting the words copyright, corp, or the C symbol. 
Before 1978, U.S. law required works to include such a word or symbol in order to be copyrighted. So because they did it wrong, it entered into public domain. domain. So that's a very rare example. Companies, they have a lot of lawyers, and they don't make big mistakes like that very often. So I guess the thing is we... It's worth knowing that like copyright lasts forever now. Not forever. It goes last 70 years after the death of the author, 95 years for a corporate thing. And I think we just want to start with that as a basis thing now because we want more talk about kind of, okay, what's the use of public domain and... And copyright And in copyright in general. And then the pros, the cons of this long, not that long, whatever. But I think before we go with that, let's just maybe give our audience a kind of rundown of the sort of things that... On the last copyright day, basically January 2023, what came into public domain? What is now able to be used freely by all people in the culture? Well, they have a a couple categories for these. Under books, they include Arthur Conan Doyle's The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes, which I think is one of the last Sherlock Holmes compilations. Yeah, I think all Sherlock Holmes is now in public domain. I believe so. Uh, it also includes Now We Are Six by A.A. A. Milne, which is basically, I think, the first Winnie the Pooh stories. Okay. So those Winnie the Pooh stories are now public domain. Oh, the first uh, Hardy Boys book is um, now public domain. Oh, and there's a there's an Agatha Christie book, The Big Four. There's a William Faulkner book called Mosquitoes, which I've never heard of. Ernest Hemingway short story collection called Men Without Women. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, of Franz Kafka's America, in the original German only, and, apparently. Uh, Herbert Asbury's The Gangs of New York, the original 1927 publication. Oh. Which I don't know if that's the same book. I got to double check. I don't know if that's the same one that uh, Scorsese read that inspired his movie Gangs of New York. It might be. But you can see that there's a lot of famous authors here that we hear about that are now, their books are slowly coming into public domain. Because anything published pre-1927, yes, I believe, or 1927 previously. 1927 and before is now yeah. public domain. Um, when we come to movies, that includes Metropolis, which, which is a great silent film. We, we've talked about that. We featured that on the podcast way back during when we were doing uh, cinema selections with mm-hmm. Brian Churchill. The Jazz Singer, which is the first full-length feature film with synchronized dialogue. Well, I, I get the first successful one yeah. at the very least. And Sunrise, directed by F.W. Murnau. Oh, okay. I have heard that one. Yeah. I men- We mentioned that last year and Let's Finally Watch This. He, uh, Murnau was the director of Nosferatu. And Sunrise was a critically acclaimed, I think that's an Oscar-winning movie, actually, that is now in the public domain. Oh, and then um, uh, The King of Kings by Cecil B. DeMille, which we just... Um... This season on this Finally Watch This, we're talking about another Cecil B. DeMille, which you'll get to hear about yes. down the road here when <laughs> season two premieres. And it's interesting because I mentioned, uh, I somewhere else, since we're on the films... There's um, a Laurel and Hardy movie, The Battle of the Century, which... I, I, I hunted that down. I need to watch I wasn't show my kids because it's like the largest pie... Pie fight. Pie fight on film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that could be fun to track down. But here's the thing with film that I guess I'm going to put an addendum here is that now that it takes this long for him to become public domain, film preservation is harder. Well, well, like I, here's, a, here's a quote from the site. It says, yeah. The case of film preservation particularly troubling because older films are literally disintegrating, soon to be lost forever. The overwhelming majority of our cinematic heritage consists of orphan films. They're covered by copyright but have no discernible copyright owner. So there's all these films... That are covered because mm-hmm. they're just that old, but no one really does anything with them. Yeah, and this is where the site really comes down on the dangers of copyright. They recognize that copyright is a very important thing for artists to have yeah. financial incentive to make stuff. Yes. You want to be able to be paid for your work, and if someone people are constantly stealing it, then 
like there's less incentive for artists to create stuff. But the downside, like in this situation, the companies that own these copyrights on some of these films, they're not doing anything with them because mm -hmm. there's not that much interest in them aside from historical value. Yeah, because there's there's a lot of newsreels, documentaries, and things like that that just, they're not making money on them anymore. No one's outside of very, very select people. Right. I mean, it's kind of shocking in some ways that, and this has happened for a long time. Actually, when doing research for this last season of Let's Finally Watch This, I was fascinated to read about photo prints. Back when film was first starting out, we're talking like early 1900s, 1910s, to copyright them, they would print every frame of the film on this long reel of paper, essentially. Weird. And that's what would be entered into the Library of Congress as a copyrighted photograph, essentially. Did you say that that's like the only way we have some movies now? Some Some movies, yes, because they were in this vault in the Library of Congress that they were relatively actually wrapped up and protected, even though the vault itself wasn't, I guess, <laughs> apparently super protected. But like in 19, 1940s, they rediscovered these things. And there are some early films that we would have no other version of them if we didn't have these paper prints because the film nitrates had just deteriorated mm -hmm. since then. And what's fascinating to me about that is like that's, so we're talking about like, a 30 year difference. Yeah. It's not like these 95 year old films that, like, you know, they're all also deteriorating. It could, it could only happen within like the span of, you know, from when you're a kid to growing up mm -hmm. to like our age now. And this is still relevant today with film, but it's also become a topic in video game preservation. Okay. Because there's actually a lot of games. I mean, there's some games that the big studios like Nintendo will bring to future consoles. Yeah, yeah. Nintendo Switch Online has a lot of games that you can play from Game Boy and other things, but not all of them because there are some of those are held by, you know, licenses that are in limbo like companies may or may not still exist or who actually owns them is in question because multiple people had contracts on these games. Well, the Internet Archive has some of these old DOS games you can play and like Oregon Trail you can find and you know these because the format has changed so rapidly no one can very few people can play the original game anymore. Exactly, exactly. I mean, there are a fair number, of, like your big consoles, sure there are some, um, like your Super Nintendo and stuff, yeah. but there are some other more obscure ones and like PC games that like, yeah, just don't exist anymore. No one has a flop, five and a half floppy. Yeah, and some people have taken, we're kind of getting a little off the topic of public domain, but some people have talked about like game piracy is actually a way to help game preservation mm -hmm. in some of these cases because it may not be strictly legal to put some of these things like the the emulated versions online but the idea is like people you are it. you're gonna lose it if you don't save it somehow what well, okay i'm gonna jump ahead well yeah i'm gonna jump ahead since it's applicable here yeah there was an interesting um part from the website that talks about going back to the duke uh duke duke university yeah it says the basic principles of our copyright system are sound, but there are consensus among academics, economists, and policymakers that the longer term, the 95 years or 70, mm -hmm. is a mistake. The benefits are minuscule. Economists, including five Nobel laureates, have shown that term extensions does not spur additional creativity. That, okay, you have all this years at its thing, but it's not benefiting anybody For in many cases. Like, there are very obvious cases where it is. Yeah. It seems like they used to have, like, you'd have a shorter term and then you could renew it. So that if you're still doing something with it, 
mm-hmm. you could renew it. So I'm, I'm not arguing for one for how long it should be, but it does seem like it's a little constricting for the vast majority of smaller or medium-sized projects. Yeah. It's one of these very tricky things about laws in that sometimes when you make something to protect one thing, you create unintended consequences for other stuff. And yet, if you were to remove that one protection, it could be like a house of cards that has mm-hmm. all kinds of other problems that go along with it. I mean, okay, so what what are the um, what are the interests that want to keep some of these longer copyright things in play? Probably the biggest one, at least historically, has been Disney. Yeah, because Mickey Mouse premiered in Steamboat Willie in 1928, which means next year Steamboat Willie is public domain. That's right. And I think they were one of the ones who really pushed the 20-year extension back in 1998. At least that's what I've, rumors I've read. Now, when it was Steamboat Willie enters into public domain next year, they're still going to have their trademark over Mickey Mouse. And trademark is a whole separate thing from copyright. Well, And yeah, we're not even getting, I don't know anything about that. I was reading a little bit about that on the, on the site, kind of the distinctions of it. And they're two different things, but we won't get into well, it. Well, and, and it's, copyright rights interesting be specific, like Winnie the Pooh. You can do them without the red shirt currently. Yeah, the, right? the, the non-Disney version. The non-Disney version is out of copyright, which is interesting. The site made this point that Disney made a lot of its money using public domain stories. The Snow White, you know, Snow White, Cinderella, Cinderella yeah. Little Mermaid. A lot of their money was made on using stories that anyone can use, and they did their own very creative thing with it, and it went really well. Mm-hmm. And there's something to be said. I mean, you know, in our episode about uh, fan fiction, I mean, that's sort of the, <laughs> yeah, that's true. the argument is that we're not trying to, again, there's a gray area there, but at least the fan fiction people say, we just want to be create, we just want to create with it. You know, it's a great playground. It's a, a good inspiration for yeah. creativity. You great, I mean, creators are constantly borrowing ideas from each other anyway. There is good to have boundaries for certain things, but it is just part of natural human history to want to like use the ingredients from all over yeah. the place and have it's like wow this is a great character Peter Pan what how many different what are different flavors yeah. we could do with Peter Pan Alice in Wonderland I mean Homer I mean all the old classic I mean anything Greek mythology of any sort Robin Hood Arthur I do appreciate the authors' estates who sometimes get very protective of the stories under their domain. But even they can sometimes go a little too far. And, and the, the site talks about the estate owners for um, Sherlock Holmes, whose some of his stories have been in public domain for a while. But they, for a while, they tried to make the legal case that, like, well, the later Holmes stories had different aspects to his character that didn't come. So you can't use those aspects. Yeah. They actually sued Netflix, I think, for their— Enola Holmes. Enola Holmes, a, yeah. a, story, a TV series about Sherlock Holmes' sister who doesn't appear in any of the books. But, you know, hey, it's fair game. It's a— an interesting new idea. Yeah, it, it was a fun movie. Yeah, and the course is like, no, you, you that doesn't work. <laughs> so I, I appreciate that sort of protectiveness, but there's a certain place where it even seems like, okay, you're just trying to get some more money off of this. I mean, here's the thing: people always go by the if if people are making good versions, everyone's hunt, I'm always hunting down the original things, and I think a lot of people, not maybe not as many people, but I mean, there's still a wide interest in just. Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Well, and I certainly hope that is the case. If do we want to go into talking about, we've talked a lot about why we agree public, some of the public domain stuff is good, but do we want to talk about some of the, yeah, like, let's go for it. And anyway, I feel like we're kind of bouncing around. All we are. Like, that's the way we, we work. We've never done that. <laughs> 
But the one downside I can see about some stories entering public domain is I've always been against death of the author in terms of a as literary criticism. Mm-hmm. Like I think it's fine, especially if an author has purposely like left certain things ambiguous in their story. But I think it's unhealthy to completely divorce a story from the author's vision for it. Yeah, and I do worry sometimes that you know, sometimes a new reinterpretation of a story could become more popular than the original version. Yeah. Or like it becomes, people have this one idea of it and they lose sight of what the the story actually is. So here's a question. But what if the original story wasn't great? <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, it's a serious question. What if it was like, it was a decent, like it rang with someone, but like you go back to it and just like, oh, whatever. But someone took that seed and made it something great. Now, again, I'm with you on, there's some story that I don't want people touching. But uh, then again, that might be, I don't know. I'm just trying to see both sides of this thing. No, that's that's a fair question. But the thing is, I don't, I can't think of any good examples of that. Like most time when people are taking an old story and doing something new with it, it's because there was enough popularity that people have some sort of name recognition of it. Okay. I can see that. So, I mean, if people want to take some, I mean, I think I've heard people make that case of that should be more what people do. Like, don't remake good old movies. Remake bad old movies and see if you can do something better with it. Yeah, yeah. Which I'm fine with that. And, I mean, some of it does get out. I mean, like, Wizard of Oz. The movie has far outshone the book. book. That's true. And the book's interesting, but it's not great. (laughs) Uh I mean, it's not bad. I mean, it's it's very fanciful, but it's also just... Yeah, it's very fanciful. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Obviously, it was still very popular in 1939 when that mm-hmm. movie came out. But would people know Wizard of Oz they still if they hadn't made a movie out of it? Yeah, I don't it's, know. It's hard to say. Yeah, there's, might... there's plenty of books that were very popular in the day that I got forgotten about down the road. I mean, yeah, my my son read the ten public domain copies of Frank L. Baum Oz back. We got them off Gutenberg, threw them on the e-reader, and. Uh-huh. And then he ran out, that was all that were available or whatever. Because then some other person wrote more sequels, I think. Mm, yeah, that sounds right. Um, anyways, it, it's, it's hard because, like, there's certain things when it comes in public domain. You know, you get your Lord of the Rings someday or something. You're like, yeah. I don't want anyone touching it because his vision so, but uh, I can't pick and choose. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is tricky. I mean, I feel the same way about Winnie the Pooh yeah. in some ways. I know All for One Productions here in in Northeast Indiana, they're going to do their own brand new adaptation of Winnie the Pooh. Oh, interesting. Early next year, I believe. So that's cool. On the flip side, someone's already made some horror movie Mm -hmm. with Winnie the Pooh called Blood and Honey or something. I just, I find that despicable. Yeah. I mean, I've talked last time about how much I hate the introducing nihilism into childhood innocence. Well, you know, my guess is that uh, Jane Austen roll over a grave with uh, Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. <laughs> um, Probably. Although some people really enjoy yeah, it. So, so. I, it's, it's a, this public domain, why it gets so tricky, I think, is because it intersects with the, the right of the author. Mm-hmm. And we have this constant tension, like, does the author own what he makes? Absolutely. Does the author have control over the story and how it should be said? Yes. How long does that go? Yeah. And is it wrong to mess with someone? You know, is it sacrosanct after that? Mm. And or something that I want to say yes. Yeah. But I guess the point is to go back to the original and be like, hey, was this, you know, and I think if the original is good enough, people keep going back to the original. 
I think so. I think so. I mean, talking about works that you really don't want to see anyone touch. I have never been interested in Lord of the Rings fan fiction. Yeah. I don't begrudge people who want to write it, but I have absolutely no interest in it because that is Tolkien's world. Yes, and fully. I mean, yes. I mean, the, the closest I get to is the Peter Jackson movies, which are actually pretty faithful. Mm-hmm. I have no interest in the Amazon series. I've also don't really have that much interest in most of the video games yeah. that are spinoffs. I played some video games that are off spinoffs from the movies and that was fine, but there are other ones I'm like, mm, that doesn't feel Tolkien-like to me. That just feels more, sometimes they feel more like fantasy games than Lord of the Rings I games. Guess, I guess, and this is off public domain, but I'll make the comment here, is that I guess sometimes what happens is what public domain does is puts the elements back into culture, but only an author can really put them together in a way that's unique. Hmm. Yeah. Because, like, I could write a story with a ring that tempts people and a wizard and some halflings, and except then comes out like Dungeons and Dragons and not <laughs> Tolkien. Yeah, yeah. And I guess then what we need to keep pointing people to is not just, hey, it's free and we can do stuff with it, but what are you going to, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to say with it? What, are you, what kind of truth or beauty are you going to accomplish with for instance, King Arthur. People have been retelling King Arthur stories forever. I just remember reading Idols of the King by Tennyson. Mm-hmm. And when he recast in this very kind of Christian allegory sort of way, and it was really neat. But he took all the elements and he said, I have a vision to connect it with something new. And I think that's where public domain can be really interesting. Uh-huh. I, and I guess that's what like things like OC Remix try to do. Like it, They're not in public domain, but they're like, <laughs> I'm going to take this thing I love and bring some new breath of life into it. Yeah. And you're going to have, your mileage will vary depending on different people's interpretation and versions of those stories. Mm -hmm. You enjoy Idols of the King, but I know you did not enjoy The Once and Future King. I did not. (laughs) Which actually, you only read The Sword and the Stone. Sword and the Stone, which I did not, no. Yeah. And for me, I enjoy various versions of Peter Pan. I just saw the recent Disney Plus Peter Pan and Wendy, Mm -hmm. and I thought it was interesting. Like They definitely put their own spin on certain things or things that I enjoyed. There are things I thought, eh. That could have been a little bit better, but it's his own interesting version of it. But the book, which is adapted from the author's own play, is also quite different. I think it, I think the book is totally worth reading for its own yeah. use of having it as beautiful poetic language. I mean, it's not, it's not really a poem, but like it has that sort of verbiage that like a fantasy author of the early 1900s would have that people just don't use nowadays. You know, I think the thing with copyright that is why it makes also why it's just more complicated now is that there are so many stories yeah and there's so many different ways to recreate you know there's so many people in the process of working through stories you know Mm -hmm. so there's sometimes because there's so much it's i might read say i read some short story from some random person back in the 20s and do something you might not even know that i what you took from the old story yeah Yeah. that's a good point you don't even have to say i don't think yeah i mean i think it's polite. Yeah. It's, you should. You, you should. So, it's inspired by, or in a note somewhere, your author's don't just say, hey, yeah, because because if you don't say anything about that, it, it can come across as plagiarism or like you're trying to hide something. But like if you're just upfront about inspired by a story or taken from a old folk tale, people will get it. It's like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, but I do think it, in modern day, it might be easy to lose the original source. You know, we say, go, oh, back, go yeah. back to the source. Let's if, it, if this guy did something good, what is the original? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, sometimes that takes extra effort and you're yeah. like... Especially it's hard to get, especially say formatting, it's hard to get to. Yeah, yeah. And again, this is 
this is more particular to film and old technologies yeah. than probably books. Books is probably a lot easier to you just, just do whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Copy it onto Google or Project Gutenberg or what have and you. The interesting thing about music, just throw it in there, is they have a list of things that the composition is one copyright. Mm-hmm. Like I made the notes and stuff, and then the recording's a separate copyright. Yeah. So Again, you're like, oh, I can sing the song, but you can't use this guy's version of it. And I guess, I mean, probably copyright law has been a mess for a long time. I mean, that's I'm guessing that's why, like, when film was brand new, why they they made the photo paper things, yeah. put every single frame on the. I mean, that just sounds prohibitive. Well, they didn't but, have the copyright the sound for the film originally. Well, that's true. It was just the images, just the images. So. And then you had to do something with the sound. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was, yeah, a whole, whole different world. It's a hard, it's, I mean, it's an interesting tension to say, look, property rights are important, you yeah. know, not just for creativity purposes and, and ownership purposes, but just because, like, thou shall not steal, you know? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. We talked in episode 124, strangely enough, this is episode 142. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> but that was in... We talked about transience of stories, about how some stories like plays are just kind of, we present it in the moment and then it's gone. Mm-hmm. And we have this desire to want to preserve everything. And from a historical perspective, at least, I do think that's a good thing. Yes. I don't think it necessarily, we have to look at it as just a, a hoarding mentality. It's part of our cultural heritage. Yeah. And it is really sad. They talk about, yeah, you know, that film preservation stuff. There's a lot from particularly the 1910. Before 1920, 1910s, and all that kind of stuff, there's a lot of film that we don't have. I mean, filmmakers were quite prolific back then. Yeah. I was doing research about Cecil B. DeMille for an episode of Let's Finally Watch This. And I think he made like, I don't have my notes in front of me, but I think he made like 70 films over the course of his career. Wow. And 50 of them were silent era films. So then they were just, they were cranking them out. And there's certainly, I mean, he's a very famous filmmaker, and there's a bunch of his that are lost. Mm-hmm. Not all of them, but a bunch. So that's a bit of history that we just don't necessarily have anymore. And and I guess one of the reasons why it's useful to talk about all this is basically just to raise awareness of it. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, we're not policymakers. We're not lawyers. But the more people who are aware of this problem, and like I said, gamers are becoming more and more aware of yeah. it in their realm. And maybe if you're listening to this, Go check out some public domain stuff on the the, the Duke website. Just Google Public Domain Day yeah. like 2023 and you should be able to find it. Well, this was places like Guten, Project Gutenberg's been great. They yeah, just, oh yeah. I mean, they collect, there's just all sorts of stuff that is in public domain that you wouldn't necessarily care about reading, but they just save it. Also, the Internet Archive. The Internet Archive does a ton of that. They have a lot of stuff. Also, their Wayback Machine that will archive mm-hmm. web pages. People used to say that if it's on the Internet, it'll last forever. Eh, not necessarily. Like there are a lot of websites that go out, and some things will be backed up on Wayback Machine, but not necessarily everything. So, Tim, last maybe last question. Sure. So, if you were a policymaker, what do you think would be a good time limit? See, I guess it used to be way back when twenty eight years, and you could renew it once. Yeah, and then now it's seventy or ninety five, depending on. It's tricky. I mean, the seventy five makes some sense to me. I mean, they point out that before. There was a previous change to the copyright law that was uh, made in 1978, apparently. And before then, this year, thousands of works from 1966 would have been entering the public domain this year. I mean, that's a big difference. It's a big, yeah. But now now the copyright will have to wait till 2062. That's a long way away. Yeah. The 75 makes a little bit more sense to me. I mean, I'm not 
a corporation, but it feels like they're not actually making all that money off their old libraries. Like the selling point for all the streaming services these days tends to be more the new stuff rather than, Hey, look at all this big backlog of century of film content that you can access. Although you can, and I kind of wish they wouldn't make that more of the big selling point. Sometimes like, Oh, I wouldn't find this old. Oh no, they don't have that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I know streaming is something that they're still figuring out how to make profitable right now. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole thing about them. Like there's some TV shows that were on HBO Max or now Max, whatever that means. And Disney Plus that they've pulled off for money saving reasons. But the problem is you can't find those shows anywhere. And some of these are like very recent stuff, like the Mighty Ducks show, I think was oh, one yeah. of them. Oh, then what do you do with it? Yeah. That's something that people put a lot of effort into making, you know, a lot of creators, artists made. No one can see it right now because <laughs> it's not like it was a streaming and no one yeah. put it on DVD yet. So if you value a certain thing, it's worth investing in physical media for that DVD mm-hmm. or Blu-ray or something. That's a whole nother discussion, but it's, <laughs> it's related in this conversation, I think. Yeah. So, I don't know. The 75 years makes, I think, is reasonable. How about after, so 75 years even after author's death? Well, I guess that's a little different. I feel like books are different from, like, movies. Okay. Because movies really are a corporate product. Yes, yes. So, I feel like that's reasonable. A book? Yeah, maybe not that long after the author's death. That seems a bit excessive. I mean, see, I mean obviously, when the author's alive, should be co- everything should be copied. Yeah, no matter how long the guy lives. Yeah, maybe cut it back like fifty years. Yeah, fifty years after author's death, I could see that being. I, yeah, be fifty years. This whole generation or two. Yeah, yeah, and at that point, it should be more clear on how much of a cultural impact something has had. Yeah. And what, what what do you think? Yeah, I, I was trying to think through that. I'm going to disagree. I don't know. I don't, I don't have a reason to disagree yet. Because, yeah, excessively, I mean, it'd be interesting. If it was 50 years right now, we all the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien be. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> But then, again, they're, all, they're like the 2% of the big movers that people care about. Mm-hmm. And like all the... But here's the thing. Like classics, you expect people just to be praying them all the time. I mean, yeah. and at this point, if it's 50 years after your death, it's either classic or no one cares. <laughs> I mean, kind of, kind yeah. of where we are. And I don't see that there's any reason why authors of states can't, even if they lost the copyright hold of something, they couldn't be advocating for yeah. adaptations that are more online. Yeah. I mean, if you can have, <laughs> there was like cartoon of Sherlock Holmes in the 31st century or something where he was like in the future. You could do ridiculous versions of that and have more faithful adaptations and here's the thing. If it's a classic, people will do faithful adaptations. I agree. They, I, they, they just do because they care about it. Mm-hmm. And if it's not a classic in the sense that like a lot of people know about it, then having a, you know someone do something with it might be the way to bring attention to it. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, like I never heard of Magnificent Amerson's the book until I watched a movie and then I'm like, oh, maybe I'll go read that thing. Yeah. That's a good point. So, yep. All right. That is our discussion on... Public domain, as warmly <laughs> as it was, but public domain and story preservation, all and that, all that brouhaha. It's, yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's probably only going to get more complicated with the internet and video games and what other new technologies might come out. AI. <laughs> oh, that's not, that's a whole can of worms. Yeah, we're so not I, gonna think, open that. I think it's time to move on. All right, and we'll go to soundtrack.
so I'm taking the first soundtrack today. And speaking of games that currently only exist on one console, the game Plock is one that I just recently uh, was introduced to through a YouTuber, NitroRad, who did a review of it. This is a game that is currently only on Super Nintendo. So if you have to own a cartridge and you have to own a Super Nintendo if you want to play it for yourself or get it online from emulators somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) So I was fascinated. I enjoyed his review of this quirky little platformer. And it's got great music, and so I was like, well, is this on Nose Your Remix? And it is. Of course it is. It's Maze Dude. It, by our very <laughs> own Maze Dude, our uh, previous guest on this podcast, Maze Dude. The great thing about Maze Dude, he'll pick games no one else, like, they'll be kind of like obscure games. Yeah. Like, and he does a lot of American composers, yes. which is one of them. Although I don't know this is featured on any of his American albums. No, I don't believe so. But I found this one, and I immediately fell in love with it. This remix is called Title Jam. I think it's impossible to listen to this without smiling, so I hope you enjoy.
Welcome Back. Hello. I always have a hard time listening to that song just once. So, listener, if you feel like you need to go back and play that song again, I won't blame you at all. No, it is a great song. We'll be here waiting for you when you come back. But speaking of, let's go to our next segment, Once Upon a Scene. So last time, I know we had at least one person tell me in person, he didn't email me like he's supposed to, <laughs> uh, but he, our friend Nathan Marchen did correctly identify last time's clip, but I guess we should play it real quick yes. first so you can hear it. So here we go. There's no more truth out there than there is in the world I created for you. Same lies. The same deceit. But in my world, you have nothing to fear. Okay, Nick, so what was that from? The Truman Show. The Truman Show. Which is, was probably fit the moment culture and predicted things coming as well as anything else. Yeah. At that the, time. The, some of the, its predictions are kind of eerie in retrospect. Yeah. <laughs> if you've not seen it, uh, audience, you should go watch it. It's a great show. It's, yeah, getting that clip, I was like, I should rewatch this thing. It's been a while. So, but we have a new sound clip for you to identify. Let's see what you can do with this one. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. Wait a minute, I tell you. You ain't heard nothing. You want to hear Tootsie? Twit, 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 All right. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. If you know what story that sound clip is from, then give us an email. DerailedTrainsOfThoughts at gmail.com. You could leave a comment in code on our website, Derailed Trains of Thoughts. You know, just do like, I don't know, A is one, B is two, C is three, that sort of thing. You can get a couple of slides and use your, never mind, that's from The Stranger. (laughs) Not The Stranger, The Prisoner. The Prisoner, yes. Uh, Yeah. So just let us know and we'll be happy to give you a shout out here on the podcast. Sorry, we can't afford to pay you anything. Nope. So moving on from that, we will go now to a bit of story. we've been talking about public domain we thought we'd do something a little different for a bit of story this time rather than featuring a story by our award-winning co-hosts what what award (laughs) uh the good job award oh okay good you got a sticker uh (laughs) we normally feature some of nick's stories but today we're gonna feature a little known authors you may have heard of him before a little guy called ray bradbury yeah so we were looking up some public domain and again Anything previous 1928 is here, but this story is from 1951, but they had done as much research and said they couldn't find it had ever been renewed, the copyright. I'm guessing maybe this was one that was published in a magazine Probably. at some point. Yeah, he published maybe. a lot of magazine ones. Yeah, maybe the magazines are is out of print, but anyway. So what is the name of the story, Nick? A Little Journey. And I have never read this one. I mean, he wrote a million short stories, but I've never read this one. So I know nothing about this one, actually. I skimmed it so I could have a little bit of idea, but this is a relatively new one to us. So uh... so I guess we should say, like, a lot of times when we read the story, we know what we're reading. This one, we actually, well, you know a little bit. I know very little. And we're just going to read and maybe discuss, did it work? Was it Bradbury? Yeah. And yeah. we'll bring a obscure short story from the public domain to you, dear listeners. Yes. Yeah. 
A Little Journey. There were two important things. One, that she was very old. Two, that Mr. Thurkell was taking her to God. For hadn't he patted her hand and said, Mrs. Bellows, we'll take off into space in my rockets and go find him together. And that was how it was going to be. Oh, this wasn't like any other group Mrs. Bellows had ever joined. In her fervor to light a path for her delicate, tottering feet, she had struck matches down dark alleys and found her way to Hindu mystics who floated their flickering, starry eyelashes over crystal balls. She had walked in the meadow paths with ascetic Indian philosophers, imported by daughters in spirit of Madame Bolaski. She had made pilgrimages to California's stucco jungles to hunt the astrological seer in his natural habitat. She had even consented to signing away the rights to one of her homes in order to be taken into the shouting order of a temple of amazing evangelists who had promised her golden smoke, crystal fire, and the great soft hand of God coming to bear her home. None of these people had ever shaken Mrs. Bellow's faith, even when she saw them sirened away in a black wagon in the night, or discovered their pictures bleak and unromantic in the morning tabloids. The world had roughed them up and locked them away because they knew too much. That was all. And then, two weeks ago, she had seen Mr. Thurkell's advertisement in New York City. Come to Mars, stay at the Thurkell Restorium for one week, and then on into space to the greatest adventure life can offer. Send for free pamphlets, Nearer My God to Thee. Excursion rates, round trip slightly lower. Round trip, Mrs. Bellows had thought. But who would come back after seeing him? And so she had bought a ticket and flown off to Mars and spent seven mild days at Mr. Thurkell's Restorium, the building with a sign on it which flashed Thurkell's Rocket to Heaven. She had spent the week bathing in limpid waters and erasing the care from her tiny bones. And now she was fidgeting, ready to be loaded into Mr. Thurkell's own special private rocket, like a bullet, to be fired on out into space beyond Jupiter and Saturn and Pluto. And thus, who could deny it? You would be getting nearer and nearer to the Lord. How wonderful! Couldn't you just feel him drawing near? Couldn't you just sense his breath, his scrutiny, his presence? Here I am, said Mrs. Bellows. An ancient rickety elevator, ready to go up the shaft. God need only press the button. Now, on the seventh day, as she minced up the steps of the restorium, a number of small doubts assailed her. For one thing, she said aloud to no one, it isn't quite the land of milk and honey here on Mars that they said it would be. My room is like a cell. The swimming pool is really quite inadequate. And besides, how many widows who look like mushrooms or skeletons want to swim? And finally, the whole restorium smells of boiled cabbage and tennis shoes. She opened the front door and let it slam, somewhat irritably. She was amazed at the other women in the auditorium. It was like wandering in a carnival mirror maze, coming again and again upon yourself. The same flowery face, the same chicken hands and jingly bracelets. One after another, the images of herself flowed before her. She put out her hand, but it wasn't a mirror. It was another lady shaking her fingers and saying, We're waiting for Mr. Thurkill. Shh! Ah! whispered everyone. The velvet curtains parted. Mr. Thurkill appeared, fantastically serene, his Egyptian eyes upon everyone. But there was something, nevertheless, in his appearance which made one expect him to call high, while fuzzy dogs jumped over his legs, through hooped arms, and over his back. Then, dogs and all, he should dance with a dazzling piano-keyboard smile off into the wings. Mrs. Bellows, with a secret part of her mind which she constantly had to grip tightly, expected to hear a cheap Chinese gong sound when Mr. Thurkell entered. His large, liquid, dark eyes were so improbable that one of the old ladies has facetiously claimed she saw a mosquito cloud hovering over them as they did around summer rain barrels. 
and Mrs. Bellow sometimes caught the scent of the theatrical mothball and the smell of calliope steam on his sharply pressed suit. But with the same savage rationalization that had greeted all other disappointments in her rickety life, she bit at the suspicion and whispered, This time it's real. This time it'll work. Haven't we got a rocket? Mrs. Thurkell bowed. He smiled a sudden comedy mask smile. The old ladies looked in at his epiglottis and sensed chaos there. Before he even began to speak, Mrs. Bellows saw him picking up each of his words, oiling it, making sure it ran smooth on its rails. Her heart squeezed in a tiny fist, and she grid her porcelain teeth. Friends, said Mr. Thurkell, and you could hear the frost snap in the hearts of the entire assemblage. No, said Mrs. Bellows ahead of time. She could hear the bad news rushing at her, and herself tied to the track while the immense black wheels threatened and the whistle screamed helpless. There will be a slight delay, said Mr. Thurkell. In the next instant, Mr. Thurkell might have cried or been tempted to cry. Ladies, be seated. In minstrel fashion, for the ladies had come up at him from their chairs, protesting and trembling. Not a very long delay. Mr. Thurkell put up his hands to pat the air. How long? Only a week. A week? Yes. You could stay here at the Restorium for seven more days, can't you? A little delay won't matter, will it, in the end? You've waited a lifetime. Only a few more days. At twenty dollars a day, thought Mrs. Bellows coldly. What's the trouble? A woman cried. A legal difficulty, said Mr. Thurkell. We've got a rocket, haven't we? Well, yes. But I've been here a whole month waiting, said one old lady. Delays, delays. That's right, said everyone. Ladies, ladies, murmured Mr. Thurkell, smiling serenely. We want to see the rocket. It was Mrs. Bellows forging ahead, alone, brandishing her fist like a toy hammer. Mr. Thurkell looked into the old lady's eyes, a missionary among albino cannibals. Well, now, he said. Yes, now, cried Mrs. Bellows. I'm afraid, he began. So am I, she said. That's why we want to see the ship. No, no, now, Mrs. He snapped his fingers for her name. Bellows, she cried. She was a small container, but now all the seething pressures that had been built up over long years came steaming through the delicate vents of her body. Her cheeks became incandescent. With a wail that was like a melancholy factory whistle, Mrs. Bellows ran forward and hung to him, almost by her teeth, like a summer maddened spitz. She would not, and never could let go, until he died, and the other women followed, jumping and yapping like a pound let loose on its trainer, the same one who had petted them and to whom they had squirmed and whined joyfully an hour before, now milling about him, creasing his sleeves and frightening the Egyptian serenity from his gaze. This way, cried Mrs. Bellows, feeling like Madame Lafarge. Through the back, we've waited long enough to see the ship. Every day he's put us off, every day we've waited, now let's see. No, no, ladies, cried Mrs. Thurkell, leaping about. They burst through the back of the stage and out a door, like a flood, bearing the poor man with them into a shed, and then out, quite suddenly, into an abandoned gymnasium. There it is, said someone. The rocket. And then a silence fell that was terrible to entertain. There was the rocket. Mrs. Bellows looked at it, and her hands sagged away from Mr. Thurkell's collar. The rocket was something like a battered copper pot. There were a thousand bulges and rents and rusty pipes and dirty vents on and in it. The ports were clouded over with dust, resembling the eyes of a blind hog. Everyone wailed a little sighing wail. 
Is that the rocket ship glory be to the highest? cried Mrs. Bellows, appalled. Mr. Thurkell nodded and looked at his feet. For which we paid our $1,000 apiece and came all the way to Mars to get on board with you and go off and fight him? asked Mrs. Bellows. Why, that isn't worth a sack of dried peas, said Mrs. Bellows. It's nothing but junk! Junk, junk, whispered everyone, getting hysterical. Don't let him get away! Mr. Thurkell tried to break and run, but a thousand possum traps closed on him from every side. He withered. Everybody walked around in circles like blind mice. There was a confusion and a weeping that lasted for five minutes as they went over and touched the rocket, the dented kettle, the rusty container for God's children. Well, said Mrs. Bellows. She stepped up into the skew doorway of the rocket and faced everyone. It looks as if a terrible thing has been done to us, she said. I haven't any money to go back home to Earth, and I've too much pride to go to the government and tell them a common man like this has fooled us out of our lives' savings. I don't know how you feel about it, all of you, but the reason all of us came is because I'm 85, and you're 89, and you're 78, and all of us are nudging on toward 100, and there's nothing on Earth for us, and it doesn't appear there's anything on Mars either. We all expected not to breathe much more air or crochet many more doilies, or we'd never have come here. So what I have to propose is a simple thing, to take a chance. She reached out and touched the rusted hulk of the rocket. This is our rocket. We paid for our trip, and we're going to take our trip. Everyone rustled and stood on tiptoes and opened an astonished mouth. Mr. Thurkell began to cry. He did it quite easily and very effectively. We're going to get in this ship, said Mrs. Bellows, ignoring him. And we're going to take off to where we were going. Mrs. Thurkell stopped crying long enough to say, But it was all fake. I don't know anything about space. He's not out there anyway. I lied. I don't know where he is, and I couldn't find him if I wanted to. And you were fools to ever take my word on it. Yes, said Mrs. Bellows. We were fools. I'll go along on that. But you can't blame us, for we're old. And it was a lovely, good and fine idea. One of the loveliest ideas in the world. Oh, we didn't really fool ourselves that we could get nearer to him physically. It was the gentle, mad dream of old people. The kind of thing you hold on to for a few minutes a day even though you know it's not true. So, all of you who want to go, you follow me into in the ship. But you can't go, said Mr. Thurkell. You haven't got a navigator, and that ship's a ruin. You, said Mrs. Bellows, will be the navigator. She stepped into the ship, and after a moment, the other old ladies pressed forward. Mr. Thurkell, windmilling his arms frantically, was nevertheless pressed through the port, and in a minute the door slammed shut. Mr. Thurkell was strapped into the navigator seat, with everyone talking at once and holding him down. The special helmets were issued to be fitted over every gray or white head to supply extra oxygen in case of a leakage in the ship's hull. And at long last the hour had come, and Mrs. Bellows stood behind Mr. Thurkell and said, We're ready, sir. He said nothing. He pleaded with them silently, using his great, dark, wet eyes. But Mrs. Bellows shook her head and pointed to the control. Take off, agreed Mr. Thurkell morosely and pulled a switch. Everyone fell. The rocket went up from the planet Mars in a great fiery glide, with a noise of an entire kitchen thrown down an elevator shaft, with the sound of pots and pans and kettles and fires boiling and stews bubbling, with a smell of burned incense and rubber and sulfur, with a color of yellow fire and a ribbon of red stretching below them, and all the old women singing and holding to each other, and Mrs. Bellows crawling upright in a sighing, straining, trembling ship. 
Head for space, Mr. Thurkell. It can't last, said Mrs. Thurkell, sadly. This ship can't last. It will... It did. The rocket exploded. Mrs. Bellows felt herself lifted and thrown about dizzily, like a doll. She heard the great screamings and saw the flashes of bodies sailing by her in fragments of metal and powdery light. Help! Help! cried Mrs. Thurkell, far away, on a small radio beam. The ship disintegrated into a million parts, and the old ladies, all one hundred of them, were flung straight on ahead with the same velocity as the ship. As for Mr. Thurkell, for some reason of trajectory, perhaps, he had been blown out the other side of the ship. Mrs. Bellows saw him falling separate and away from them, screaming, screaming. There goes Mr. Thurkell, thought Mrs. Bellows, and she knew where he was going. He was going to be burned and roasted and broiled good, but very good. Mrs. Thurkell was falling down into the sun. And here we are, thought Mrs. Bellows. Here we are, going on out and out and out. There was hardly a sense of motion at all, but she knew that she was traveling at 50,000 miles an hour and would continue to travel at that speed for an eternity until she saw the other women swinging all about her in their own trajectories. A few minutes of oxygen left to each of them in their helmets, and each was looking up to where they were going. Of course, thought Mrs. Bellows, out into space, out and out, and the darkness like a great church, and the stars like candles, and in spite of everything, Mr. Thurkell, the rocket, and the dishonesty, we are going towards the Lord. And there, yes, there, she fell on and on, coming towards her. She could almost discern the outline now. Coming towards her was his mighty golden hand, reaching down to hold her and comfort her like a frightened sparrow. I'm Mrs. Amelia Bellows, she said quietly, in her best company voice. I'm from the planet Earth. The end. The end. That was a great Bradbury story. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering, you, so you're the Bradbury expert here. That uh, is very Bradbury. Is it? Okay. Lots of ways. <laughs> in the in the descriptions of the, you know, the kind of like the, it depends on the story, but you know, like, it's like this and this and this kind of, mm. and just the sort of, um, nothing's quite, it, like, it's not realism. Yeah. Yeah. It's always just a little off from realism, but like. And just the fun characters and the... <laughs> I mean, just the image of a, a whole bunch of ladies wanting to go up to Mars so they could get on a rocket ship to see God. I was like, this is an interesting story. <laughs> <laughs> and then it blows up and Thurkel goes gets burned up. and So yeah. did they find God? I'm guessing so, yeah. I'm going to say so. Okay, okay. I, I like that. That felt very much like anyone I would read one of his short stories. Because there's just, he loves rockets, too. Just space, okay. and that sort of adventure. Not like hard sci-fi, just that mm. rockets take you places. Oh, okay, sure. There's a story in um, The Martian Chronicles where basically, or is there, I don't know, there's one story where Mars is basically the home for like all the the gothic horror story, like mm. for like, Poe and was like all these stories that people have tried to everyone's logical on earth so they've sent them away and now like they all live on mars all these all, all, these, all these fictional stories like sherlock holmes and macbeth and, oh the stories like the story like the, the characters from the stories themselves oh okay <laughs> so he he does this weird like it's not quite surreal but it's not realism it's yeah magical realism maybe okay okay um but this is this was a pretty good short story from yeah i've never seen this one he always has a character who like really wants something, and then he just unwinds it. You know, uh-huh. this lady just is, keeps looking for some sort of spiritual something. Yeah. And she knows it's fake, but she keeps going after it. Mm-hmm. It is very interesting. So was he religious himself? 
My best, like, this is not official. My impression of him from what I've read a little bit and what, he's kind of like good hometown boy, like good country boy. So I'm not sure he had like a, like he was Christian per se, but he's like, he was like a country boy. He had that, mm. he had a moral faith-ish the background. Background, yeah. yeah. I don't know how exact or strong it was, but he just, yeah, he had this very pleasant, like, you know, there's a heaven, there's a moral way of the world working. Okay. As opposed to a lot of the other um, science fiction writers at the time, I think, were more more cynical it, or or secular, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting. I think I read something about Harlan Ellison writing about Bradbury, that Bradbury was just always so optimistic and, you know, and like cheery. And Harley Ellison's very, very cynical. And cynical. And, yeah. But they were yeah. friends, I guess, you know. So <laughs> it feels like it was a different time in some ways. I mean, it obviously was 1950s and stuff. But, yeah. But I don't know. Just you hear about like Harlan Ellison and his, all his like other writer friends. Yeah. And, and it's like, I don't know. It was a different circle of like science fiction authors mm-hmm. and these, and that you could get these things published in magazines and other science fiction authors would read them and hear about them. Yeah. And that's one of those things that we talk about when we talk about the deluge of stories today. I feel like that kind of thing gets lost. Yeah. It really does. I mean, there's just so much and there's yeah. so many pockets that you could do that in maybe a little pocket, but there's just yeah. endless pockets. Right. Right. Well, yeah, that was, that was fascinating. That was, that was fun. So I'm, was I'm, that your first Bradbury? I'm not sure. Well, if you read the one about the house and the nuclear bomb and the house that's automatic, that's pretty common. I don't remember. I might have read like a yeah. I might have read some short story in yeah. high school at some point. But he, I mean, almost everyone reads one of them somewhere. Just because he wrote so many. I'm trying to remember if he wrote the one. I remember th- there was this one about this guy who wanted to who was arrested while he was taking a walk by basically an automatic policeman because he didn't that, have a I think reason. That's Bradbury. Yeah. Is that Bradbury? Yeah. yeah. Cause he, did, he wasn't at home watching TV basically. Yeah. He had no I, good reason to be outside. I'm pretty sure that's him. Yeah. I mean, he did write hundreds of short stories. Yeah. I mean, that's, it, it sounds very Bradbury. It sounds like akin to the guy who wrote Fahrenheit 451 <laughs> from yeah. what I, I'm, which shock that I've never actually read that one. But. It's worth reading. It's worth, it's, it's yeah. good. I know, I know you've actually taught class. I on have, it, right? It was fun. So. Yeah. All right. Well, that cool. was that was a good, uh, a fun change. Yes, for a bit of story. And that was a, just a fun one to read. Yes, and thank you, Public Domain. That's yes, a, made that possible. I could watch a short film, some cool animated film of that. Yeah, I feel like yeah, an animated feature that would be perfect for that sort of thing. I want to all the the old ladies in spacesuits. <laughs> That's amazing. That'd be that'd be amazing. All right then. <laughs> Well, thank you folks for listening to Derailed Trains of Thought. We hope you enjoyed that bit of story as well as our discussion about public domain. If you did, please uh, let us know. We really would like to hear more from more of you on the website, particularly those we love hearing from. We have friends and family nearby who listen to this. But those of you who don't know us or don't see us regularly, we have no idea if you're actually listening or not. Yeah. So uh, if you don't let us know, we don't know that we're ministering to you in some way. And not that we are looking to buff ourselves up, but honestly, we don't really have any clear idea of how many people this podcast reaches. No. And um, hopefully hopefully some people find it entertaining. Yes. And helpful. Indeed. Indeed. So please leave us a comment at derailedtrainsofthought.com. You can leave it on this episode. Um, And also while you're there, hey, check out some of our old episodes for this podcast, as well as our spinoff podcasts, which include... The Weekly Hijack. By the time this comes out, we should be finished with the complete run of The Prisoner, I think. Or pretty darn close. Very close. I think the last episode will come out beginning of July. Okay. 
So, so very close. Which, again, great, great run. That hijack was a blast to do. Indeed, yeah. I think the You pris- should listen to it and watch it at the same time. You should be prepared because The Prisoner will probably enter our lexicon of frequently referenced TV shows. But yeah, it probably will come out there with Lost and Balan 5. And yeah. Because we've already been doing it, it's entered our vocabulary. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, uh,. Just be on the it's lookout. That sort of show. It was a perfect choice for us. <laughs> it really was. It, I mean, we knew that Lost took a lot of inspiration, and Babylon Five took a lot of inspiration from The Prisoner. So it was great to finally see it for ourselves and react to it. The original. See, it's one of those. You know, That's it's right. not common, not public domain, but it has that that effect. It does for sure. And our other podcast, Let's Finally Watch This, which is meant for classic movie fans who have always meant to watch classic movies. We have a new season of that in production as we speak. That will be coming out come September. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you never listened to our first season, perfect time for you to get caught up as we uh, go through the decades of movies and a lot of good movies that I'm not as well versed in my classic movies. And it was a it was a really good run. Yes, and I th- we're looking forward to this new season as well. Mm-hmm. So with that, all that said, Nick, I think it's time for your soundtrack. Well, I decided to pick something from Wolfenstein 3D. Because one of the things I find most fascinating about this discussion of public domain is that the people argue that we should have shorter, argue that it spurs creativity. Shorter copyright time. Sorry, thank you. Shorter copyright spurs creativity. And Wolfenstein is one of those games that basically started a genre. It was kind of the grandfather of the 3D shooter. A first-person shooter. First-person shooter, sure. Okay. And also, ID apparently has made Wolfenstein and Doom, and I think Doom 2, they're all basically open source. You can go find the original source code. Because so ID is the original publisher? Yeah, ID Software. Okay. Yeah. And they've made the, the game open source so anyone can use it. Yeah, I th- and they have the source code. You get the source code. And they said that, you know, things just kind of rot away and they wanted to put it out there so people could nice. look at it and whatever. I would love to see more video game companies do that sort of thing because, I mean, that's a game from 1992. It's going to look ancient. Yeah. So yeah. you can get some money out of it, but... Well, it's much. interesting. Back then, they would like. I think the first it was in episodes. Like the first episode was basically freeware shareware. Oh, okay. And then when you liked it, then you go and buy the. Ah, so okay. even early, you know, you get those discs. Like, oh, I can just download this for free or use this disc, and it's sure. you get in your computer magazine or whatever. You know, back in the day. Uh huh. So, anyways, I I don't think I played much Wolfenstein. Played more Doom and Doom Two, but I thought this was kind of the grandfather. But this is Get Psyched, remixed by. Mike M92 or no I bet it's Mike EDM I don't know how you say that Mike DM92 Mike DM92 yeah that'll work it's darker than Tim's uh, <laughs> we go from a light cheery to death metal yeah kind of, uh, close yeah I mean aggressive metal at least I yeah. guess if it was for Wolfenstein 3D I guess that makes some sense yeah, aren't yeah. you isn't that a game all about shooting Nazis yeah basically yeah. so yeah <laughs> but I guess enjoy Well, we hope you do. And thanks again for listening to Derailed Trains of Thoughts. Until next time, this is Tim. This is Nick. And Nick, let's uh, hope that the residents of 100 Acre Wood aren't disturbed by your music here. They don't think it's going to fit very well. They will just mute the computer. Oh, bother. (laughs) 